You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode number 144. Does research make a difference? Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Welcome to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. My name is Dave Stahoviak. And my name is Sandy Morgan. And this is the show where we empower you to study the issues, be a voice, and make a difference in ending human trafficking. And each of these episodes, uh, Sandy and I get together and uh, we often talk to an expert in helping us in this fight to end human trafficking. And in the case of today's episode, in addition to talking to an expert, I'm so glad that we get to talk to someone who's a friend of both of us and just really a fabulous, uh, fabulous contributor to this field. Um, she's got a new book coming out. We've both had a chance to work with her. And I'm really excited, Sandy, to be able to introduce Annalisa and Relay to our audience today. Dr. Enrile is one of the few Filipina PhDs in social work, having chosen the field as a way to bring light to important social issues in the Filipino-American community, the fastest-growing Asian immigrant population. She frequently speaks out against sex trafficking, anti-militarization, and exploitative migrant labor. She's a voice for equality and global justice, and is a clinical associate professor at USC. She has been recognized as one of the 100 most influential Filipinas in the world for her efforts to stop violence against women. She has worked with students, communities, and academic partners to create social change through innovation and collaboration. And she is the author of the forthcoming book, Ending Human Trafficking and Modern Day Slavery, Freedom's Journey. Annalisa, we're so glad to welcome you to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. And I got to say, the first three words of that book title, whew, they're great, right, Sandy? Oh, that's right. <laughs> Hashtag E-H-T, Ending Human Trafficking. And Elisa, I, I am so excited to have you here today. I love it when my colleagues in this battle also become my friends. And we have just begun walking together. So Freedom's Journey, that has a real, uh, just resonates with me because no one can do this alone. And that's one of the themes that people hear in our podcast, this idea of working together, of collaboration. So welcome to Ending Human Trafficking. Thank you for having me. It's, um, I'm so excited to talk about the book. I am too. <laughs> I do want to just tag team with Dave. It was wonderful for me because we've met in person. We've had lots of great conversations. You've been to an ending hum- um, an insured justice conference. Uh, you participated in one of our summits. And when I I never read your bio until prepping for this <laughs> podcast. And oh my goodness, now I'm super grateful that you're my friend. I I might have been too intimidated among the 100 top Filipinas in the world. And we need those voices um, that demonstrate different perspectives on culture and life. And I am just super grateful to have you in my community. So, Likewise. Thank you. Yes. I guess our listeners would like us to dive into the content and quit just saying how much we like each other, right? (laughs) 
Yeah, Dave's <laughs> laughing at me now. Go ahead, Dave. Well, you know, it's uh, one of the, and we talk about partnership all the time. And, um, you know, one of the, uh, as difficult an issue as this is, one of the, um, one of the things that come out of it that is a positive thing is uh, getting to work with so many wonderful people as a part of it. Um, and that's really a part of this book and, that's and right. part of the conversation today too. That's right. So um, I, I'm going to kind of ask some questions. This is more of an introduction to this book um, on behalf of our listeners, but um, you're going to ha- be able to pre-order if you'd like on Amazon, and we'll put the link in our show notes for that. It's obviously from a uh, just a cursory look at the table of contents. It really introduces the concepts necessary to become a collaborator, to join this freedom journey um, from a lot of different perspectives. And in the first chapter, one of the issues that you address is alternatives to the trafficking in persons report. And from a personal perspective, uh, when I teach classes, I require my students to not just report from our U.S. perspective, our State Department report, but they need to triangulate. They need to have different, um, more of a 3D approach from different parts of the world, that sort of thing. So when you talk about alternatives to the TIP report, Trafficking in Persons report, what are you addressing? Well, um, I'm really addressing kind of the main reason that I wrote the book. Um, I've actually been working, if I could just kind of take a step back for a second, you know, um, I've been working with trafficking since I was an undergraduate and, and, you know, much like the two of you before, even we had these words and this vocabulary that we built around this terrible issue. Um, I remember being 19 years old and and hearing the stories of uh, these women who were trafficked in sweatshops and really beginning to kind of connect the dots to um, just what I was learning as a student about violence against women. And, you know, since then, um, I've been very lucky and privileged to have had the career in academia that I've had where it's really rooted in the community. And even though, you know, policy and law enforcement and these tip reports um, that come out are important for us in a way to gather data, there's still nothing like really hearing from those that are experiencing um, this issue. And so, you know, Sandy, when you talk about triangulating information, I think that it's another way for us to really value the communities that are often underserved and underrepresented. And it's those women's voices, mainly women that I've worked with and children um, and, and, you know, a few men as I've worked in the labor trafficking area, um, it's those stories that I really wanted to come out um, in this book. Although it is an academic textbook, uh, myself and my team tried as hard as we could to make sure that those voices came through, you know, unvarnished and as unedited as possible. Well, that's really excellent. I, I can't wait to hold it in my hand. So um, <laughs> the, the pre- Me too. <laughs> yes. And what is the pre-order date shipping date? Uh, We're aiming for August. Okay. Okay. That's great. Students out there, B 
be um, aware that there will be some new textbooks in our classes. So, <laughs> um, I also wanted to talk to you a little bit about the format of how the chapters are laid out. Uh, there is a call to action at the end of each chapter. Would you comment on how that structure came apart about? Yes. So um, when I first started writing the book, you know, I've, um, I, uh, as, as many of you or some of you might know, when you go into academia, you're often told to publish or perish. Um, and I've been very lucky to be at a school that really honors a continuum of scholarship and really has challenged us to redefine scholarship. And in this case, um, you know, how do we look at research? And um, oftentimes it's only the person whose name goes on the book or on the article that, you know, is counted as the quote unquote researcher scholar. Um, but again, going back to us really wanting to honor the folks that are doing work on the ground. I put together a team of seven or eight women um, and we really wanted to honor everyone's participation. So even those that didn't write, but that were doing real work um, at the front lines, um, we wanted to make sure that people understood that that is a form um, of research and action uh, that really go together. And so every chapter actually opens up with a vignette that is told from an account of a first responder, a helping professional, an activist, really from the eyes of those of us that are working in this issue. Because oftentimes we hear from the survivors, we hear from um, even the perpetrators, but we never get to hear from the providers and for those in, from the activists and the advocates, et cetera. And so, um, you know, with my students, I know they really like and really learn from the stories that I tell from my own experience. And I knew that there was just a world of experience out there. And so it, those are the stories that actually start each of the chapters. Um, and then of course we have content and clinical vignettes um, and community vignettes, but we end all of them with a call to action. And I think that this is my particular bias as a social worker. Um, although the book is aimed towards all helping professionals, it definitely has um, a strong root in social work where, you know, I always like to say, you could learn as much as you want, we could teach you any intervention, but unless you put it into action, you're not doing social work. And so that's how we end each chapter with a call to action at the micro, meso and macro level. Wow, I so resonate with that. I always want people to do something, which is, you know, our tagline in the Global Center for Women and Justice is to study yes. the issues be a voice, make a difference. So you can study forever and ever, and you'll never really have enough understanding to know for sure that what you're going to do is the best thing. It, this, it's a judgment call. And we, we have to, at some point, step up, say something, and do something with the best information we have possible. So I'm so yeah. excited. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that, you know, earlier when we started our conversation, um, you alluded to, you know, wicked problems. Um, and I think that trafficking is such a complex and multi-layered and intersectional problem. And, you know, we want to 
not disengage people. We want, we don't want people um, to read about this and be so depressed or feel so disempowered. The whole point of the book is to empower people. And so when we do the call to actions, we offer um, various levels of getting engaged and various levels of, of acting um, and certainly recognize uh, from page one that even just learning about and raising awareness, um, you know, is, is a form of action. So I have a practice when I pick up a new book, I, I read the foreword, and then I scan the first chapter and the last chapter. And so for this introductory podcast about your new book, I, I want to look at now the closing chapter, chapter 15. And the title of the chapter is Ending Trafficking in Modern Day Slavery. So First of all, it has a positive approach that this is possible to do. We can do it. And the chapter objectives are what we have learned so far, evolving trends, changing role of survivor advocates or activists, and then a call to action. So let's look at the first three, and then we'll discuss the call to action. So what have we learned so far? Well, we definitely go through, so the way that the book is uh, divided is looking at what clinical interventions are happening, uh, what legislation has been passed, and what um, the grassroots movement um, has been doing, you know, all along throughout um, uh, the last few decades. Um, And so, while we have learned um, and tried to be very comprehensive in terms of uh, being better at identification, um, being better at going down to root causes, um, we're still not doing enough. Um, If we take an ecosystems lens, which is one of the lenses that the book takes, um, we see that there is, you know, so many pieces to this puzzle um, of trafficking and um, not often do we take the whole picture into account. And so, you know, um, from a national level, we may be operating as single countries um, where we need to be operating as a global society um, as a, you know, helping profession, we really look at things from our particular lenses, but we need to be building those bridges across. Some of the most exciting things I think that are happening in trafficking are, you know, public, academic, corporate partnerships, um, the use of technology um, that's exploding in the space um, where real collaborations are happening. You know, you don't just have these tech companies saying, you know, we think we could solve it. They're really taking into account what communities and what NGOs have been, you know, knowing forever um, in order to inform their technology. And, And that's where I see, you know, taking what we know and being able to scale it and make it better. Um, as being the promise um, and really kind of what we are talking about um, in this last chapter. And Annalise, that's something I've noticed too. Um, I'm, and I'm really curious about because uh, you and I actually got introduced because one of uh, one of my clients uh, is working with you in some collaboration in a corporation to help raise awareness on trafficking. And I'm, I'm curious if you could give us an example of what you're seeing start to emerge in that that's, that's um, exciting as far as getting the business community involved with this. 
Well, we've been working with, um, you know, different consulting groups and, you know, and Dave, like you said, um, in, in this particular case, looking at uh, construction labor trafficking and how do we stem that. And um, again, it's what do we know? We know that law enforcement, as hard as they're trying, is not the answer. Um, we know that audits, you know, in this case uh, for labor trafficking, um, as good as it sounds, is not the answer. Um, we're moving towards more technology and transparency. And um, so, so as an example is really looking at what are the technological tools that we do have? How can we repurpose them? What is the potentiality of building that out uh, to be anti-trafficking tools? Um, and then getting you know corporations to understand that this is an important issue, um, that people are paying attention. Uh, in particular, consumers are becoming um, the force that they can be um, in creating, um, you know, corporate archetypes of goodness. Is that a mm. Ooh, <laughs> funny I like term? That. But corporate. Yeah, it, say it, that again. It's what I aspire to. Corporate archetypes of goodness, oh. um, where we're moving, you know, not we're we're letting go of corporate social responsibility, and we're moving towards corporate social impact, because mm -hmm. I think that there is a definite role um, that corporations can bring to scale things that you know um, the public and nonprofit community just don't have the resources to, uh, and these are the types of partnerships that I think will make a huge difference in the fight, and. The idea that these corporate archetypes of goodness, um, I, uh, you've captured my imagination again. <laughs> I think that's kind of where the promise piece is emerging. And so if someone is not going to read an academic book, are, are there other ways for them to engage from a corporate level to understand some of these principles that you're espousing here? Yes, I definitely think, um, you know, we've been having a lot of uh, different meetings uh, with different companies and organizations, uh, different roundtables. Um, one of the objectives of the book is to be a tool to bring people together. So like you said, Sandy, I, um, people may not read all 500 or so pages, but we can certainly use it as a point of connection to bring these different uh, players together and bring these different entities together. And I mean, you know, for me, it's been a very long journey. That's why we entitled the book in this way. There's, you know, no way if you told me at the age of 21 that I would be sitting down in corporate boardrooms instead of protesting outside of them, that this would be the case. And I think that, you know, more and more we are beginning to see the place and the role that everybody has uh, to address trafficking. Um, it's, it's, you know, I always say this, like the, we're not making big dents. The numbers aren't getting smaller. And it's not because people aren't doing good work. And in fact, we're doing great work. We're finding more and more ways to identify trafficking. It's just that that's how much trafficking and slavery is in the world. Absolutely. And this, this whole idea of how we pull together and use the space that we have in our hands to create that, uh, a bigger group of us on this journey. It's in our recent conversations, you're talking about um, hosting a roundtable for um, technology innovators. 
And I think that kind of corporate archetype of goodness, pulling those kind of leaders together is critical. Um, I, I get really excited about those kinds of ideas. <laughs> and you know that I'm all about being a convener and bring together roundtables and do summits because we do get people um, to figure out what their place is in partnership, whether they're public, private, or nonprofits, um, any any part of the community. So let me move on to, because I, I know that our time is limited today, I want to hear from you about the changing role of survivor advocates. Yes, this is a particular passion of mine. Um, wherever possible in the book, we spoke to survivors and we actually, um, you know, tried as hard as we could to include um, their voices and their perspectives. And um, one of the areas, you know, that I'm particularly um, committed to is really being able not to just put survivors' voices at the forefront or in the center of this issue and these solutions, um, but to not forget that they're survivors. And I think so often um, we get into a space where people are so hungry for firsthand stories that they forget that, you know, freedom isn't something that you can just hand someone, that it's a process, it's, you know, it's a journey. Um, and oftentimes, you know, we get these really strong survivors and we have to keep in mind that, you know, the healing is ongoing. Um, that when we talk about trauma-centered or trauma-informed interventions, that we're also keeping that in mind, not just for survivors, but for those of us that are responders and providers um, and advocates. And I think that, you know, um, if, if we could do that, we create this space that's more than safe. You know, a colleague and I like to always call it creating brave spaces for people to really be able to stand in their truth and speak out against these types of things and, and join the fight in a way that still protects their healing journey and their, you know, and what they need as well. Um, and, and I think that there's some organizations that have been extremely, extremely strong in this and we talk about them in the book. And, and that's the other thing that I'm so excited about is um, we highlight in each chapter organizations that are doing great work. Well, I like that. So the the aspect that survivors are still in a healing place, um, the idea of moving survivors forward, forging pathways towards um, successful life. Um, I'm I'm I really want to engage a little bit more on that because there is a sense when I talk to people that they love to have the number of people quote unquote rescued. Uh, but they don't follow on to find out where they are in five years, where they are in 10 years. Uh, can you yes. expand on that a little bit? Yes. And I mean, and even to start from that point of rescue, you know, this kind of question that it always um, comes to my mind when people talk about rescue missions um, is, you know, how, how do the people in that situation, like what are they facing? Do they want to be rescued or see themselves as, I mean, I think it's a, you know, we always assume that um, people need rescuing. 
which in large part, you know, theoretically and, and maybe practically they do, but you also have to be able to get people when they're ready um, to make changes. Um, when we understand all the unintended consequences, you know, oftentimes people that are trafficked or enslaved are being threatened um, by the rest of their family or communities being hurt. And we have to understand that. Um, and then once, you know, that, um, once freedom or the road to freedom is set in place, we also have to do what you're saying, Sandy, and, and go back and return and see what happens afterwards. You know, crisis shelters, um, uh, first responders, um, all of these types of things, once you get someone out of a situation, that, that's just the first step. The most crucial step, I believe, is what does the support look like afterwards? Um, and, you know, there's some very good um, local and national survivor networks where they're really grappling, you know, with that question, like, when can you stop um, feeling um, like you um, are traumatized. I don't think that ever stops, you know, and um, I, I believe that we have to have these different responses and phases in place um, and, and build communities uh, where survivors um, are allowed to uh, move beyond their stories. You know, um, I recently spoke at a survivor um, conference, um, a convening in, in Sacramento, and one of the most powerful things that was told to me while I was preparing, you know, to, to share my own stories um, were that I moved beyond certain parts of my narrative. And I have to be able to articulate that too. And, and I don't know that we're doing that great of a job in in the five years, 10 years, 15 years afterwards. And, and we, so that just tells us that the continuum is broad. We have to pay attention to all of it. Um, and that justice like freedom is something that, you know, everyone has a role in, but that that role continues to change as we go for it. I like to teach my community that um, being a survivor is not this person's identity. Um, this Absolutely. is part of their journey, part of their experience, and telling their story is not why they're here. They're here to teach us what they learned. And we're sometimes we're just so um, trained by media to just be hungry for another story. We really have to have a purpose in how we use, and I'm using the word use because sometimes it can be mm-hmm. exploitative. And I want to caution our, our community about how they, how they implement survivor stories in, in their organization and consider um, ethics and, and really the individual dignity of the person, no matter who it is. Okay. I right, uh, go ahead. Oh, you go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. No, no. I just was going to I I just wanted to put a exclamation point on that one. And I I'm looking at our time and there's like another um 24 hours of time we could spend talking about the That's over right. 500 pages. So you're going to have to come back. But what I want to end with um first of all two things. One, if Dave has another question, he gets a turn. 
Um, but what I'd really like you to do is tell someone in the community why they need to read this book, even though they're not going to take a course and have to write a paper or take an exam. Why would someone else read an academic book? We've tried to keep it um, as relatable as possible. And I think that the one reason that people should pick up this book is because we take a very empowerment, human rights approach um, in addition to an ecosystem lens to talk about trafficking, to have real conversation, to provide real solutions. Um, you know, we don't say things like you have to have best practices. We actually review and evaluate some of the best practices and bring together the literature that's out there. Um, we want to be as practical and as hands-on as possible. Um, and again, I mean, I would read this just for the stories that we've tried so hard to include um, and the different perspectives. And I think that that is one of the best things that we could do in this space and as anti-traffickers is to really begin to understand all of the different perspectives that are involved in this issue. I am so excited. I'm going to pre-order my <laughs> copy uh, before the end of the day. And I hope that many of our listeners will also do that because I think it will prepare us to strengthen our community, to um, do a better job of of doing this together. There is a, a lot of conversation about collaboration versus competition because resources are, are often part of the issue and resources are going to be leveraged when we work together and learn how to be doing um, the same work in the same space that is inclusive and actually moves the needle on ending human trafficking and modern day slavery. Dave, um, do you think we should have Annalisa come back? Oh, indeed. And I, I think one of the points uh, you both made is just, uh, you know, the numbers out there is as good as the work is being done. Uh, there's still so much more to go. And that's one of the reasons we keep talking about partnership and collaboration. And uh, and we're on this journey all together in, in working together to, to end this issue. And that's one of the reasons I'm really excited about uh, this perspective. So thank you so much, Annalisa, for bringing uh, this perspective to us. Uh, Sandy, we're going to include all the all the links in the notes, of course. Uh, so you can get that at our website by going to um, gcwj.vanguard.edu. Or actually, it changed, Sandy, yeah, it didn't did. it? It's, it's now vanguard.edu slash gcwj, isn't it? That's right. That's all right. All right. So we'll send you over there. And of course, um, we'd love to hear your feedback on today's show. If you have more questions or maybe some questions came up for you, that we didn't have a chance to answer today, uh, go ahead and email us, gcwj at vanguard.edu. That stands for the Global Center for Women and Justice here at Vanguard University. You can also call us with a question, 714-966-6360. And our call to action to you today, of course, is to check out the book, uh, pre-order it, or, or if you're listening to this after it comes out, Ending Human Trafficking and Modern Day Slavery, Freedom's Journey by Annalisa and Relay. I hope you'll check it out. And we will see you again in two weeks. Right, Sandy? That's right. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everyone. Take care. <laughs>